Today, we are talking to Andrew Ward, the CTO of Model, and we talk about what makes great leaders, machine learning, asking for feedback, and much more. This episode is high energy and packed full of knowledge, all right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Yeah, I had an early morning. I was at this breakfast uh, event where this guy named David was speaking. He's a futurist, so he talks about the future. Yeah. And wow, he, he scared everyone a little bit, but it was a lot of fun. So he's any particular specialism of the future or just trying to basically predict? Yeah, so he is apparently pretty popular. He goes around the world and speaks on con- different continents and his list of credentials was pretty great. Uh, it's like his name is David Hull, like H O U L E. But he he was talking about uh, the next five years, the next ten years, and stuff like that. And he tries to make predictions that really help the CEOs to kind of align their business. So he was he was pretty big on machine learning. Have you messed with that at all? Us ourselves aren't machine learning specialists. However, it's it's a common question amongst sort of the kind of projects that we take on at the moment. Um, I'm seeing a lot of people asking, hey, how can we build machine learning into it? Um, I'm not sure if it's necessarily because they know what they want to do with machine learning. It's more, I, I think, it's become a buzzword that is oh, yeah. synonymous with innovation. Everybody wants to be jumping on the bandwagon because it makes their, their startup more valuable. <laughs> A hundred percent. They first, it was artificial intelligence that made its rounds in the VC circuits, right? And then they jumped over to machine learning. And before that, it was the cloud, right? <laughs> so I love the buzzwords and how they go around. I always tell people to stop thinking about machine learning and start thinking about predictions. Like if if you can't if you can't explain what you're trying to do in terms of a, a prediction that you're trying to make, then maybe machine learning isn't actually what you're looking to do. Maybe you just need an algorithm. Oh, exactly. What is machine learning without predictions that you're trying to test, right? Yeah, but a lot of people don't think of it that way. So the non, a non-technical person approaching the machine learning topic just thinks, I want the computer to do it for me. And, and they don't necessarily know the distinction between what's artificial intelligence, what is an automated system, and what is, well... I was going to say the types of machine learning that, you know, they don't know what's the difference between a statistical analysis that makes a prediction versus true node-based machine learning, deep learning. I mean, there's a lot to understand with it and a lot of capabilities and benefits. And I think most people in the tech sphere, in the startup sphere, when they're thinking machine learning are, are really thinking deep. I think that's when you're seeing the big innovations, but there aren't that many specialists in it. And not in the UK, at least, not from what I've seen. What what you tend to see, particularly in the, in the larger organizations, is a tendency to look at what data do they have at the moment and how can you make meaningful machine learning predictions based upon that data. That's one way of approaching that problem. Um, it's how, um, have you seen the whole uh, Google data collection at the moment where you visit a place and it asks you a, a, a ton of questions about um, where you've been or what your experience was? Um, they're, you know, they're looking at the users that are using their systems at the moment and trying to get data probably for, for crafting these machine learning algorithms. The big question that I have, however, is how many unsolved problems are there out there 
where the data to solve the machine learning problem isn't readily accessible. Because, you know, you might need 100,000 to a million data records to truly do plus to do meaningful machine learning. And what problems exist out there where actually the problem isn't necessary, the training of the computer, the problem is getting that meaningful data to solve the problem. I was talking about this yesterday. <laughs> we were, I was talking, a guy messaged me through the website because I, I'm right there and I respond, it comes right to my phone. Cool. And he, he started, he said, oh, I've got some ideas about cognition and you know, point, like, point me in the right direction. Well, what are your thoughts on this? And what he stirred up inside of me was about two months ago, I was having a conversation with some investors and I, I was actively looking at a few machine learning projects that they were going to put money into. And I said to myself, the big play here, in my opinion, or the, the play that's least discussed is having high volumes of quality curated data for the models to train themselves on. Cause mm. that's the shortage. That's the oxygen that they need to breathe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you want to teach the machine learning about empathy, right. Let's pretend that we're farther in the future, right? Cause that's always fun. And let's say that they can already process text and, and, and do it at a much greater, uh, level than they can do it today, right? So if you want to train it on the concept of empathy, you'll need hundreds of varying stories where empathy is like the center of the story, right? Mm. And in a form that can be consumed by a machine learning model. Yeah. So that that doesn't exist. No, you can't put on an episode, you can't put on a series of friends and say like, be like Joey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you can't, you need, you need quality data that based on what you want it to do, you know that it was made for that purpose. Mm. Yeah, it's true. What's the empathy score for that particular sentence? Yeah. I, I think you see this in tech as a whole, though, like um, problems that people can get their hands on and solve as a lone developer tend to, tend to be solved and tend to be solved well. Like mm. there are loads of really good programming tools out there because programmers know what they want and they build them. So you get them cheap and abundant. I mean, where you tend to see the biggest opportunities at the moment in the world is where you get a crossover of disciplines that doesn't necessarily happen naturally. And I, I guess you can relate that to machine learning data in the same way, where it's the alignment of those two sectors that kind of results in that problem being solved. Once once the problem exists in the marketplace, it seems obvious, but until it does, people don't. Yeah, well, you have like the diversity concept of the rainforest, like what makes it so sustainable is its large variety of everything. And that's exactly what we're seeing happen in this technology space, right? Technology is not becoming less sustainable. It's becoming more sustainable because of the vast amount of variety that's cropping up everywhere. And it's like mixing specialties, like you're talking about, that all breeds creativity and it's brilliant, right? Yeah, it's true. I mean, I heard a story the other day about a um, a tech conference and they had, they had two different disciplines. They had a they had a, a medical conference that was next to a tech conference. I might be paraphrasing here. And this guy walks in, you don't know who he is, and he sat listening to the medical guy. And the medical guy is there talking about how they've got this problem about how to serve this medicine into these cancerous cells. But if they could solve the problem, then they basically be onto a, they'd be onto a solution. They'd be onto a, to a winning um, winning business, make big changes in the world. And the guy who walked in from the tech conference happened to be like an expert in nanotechnologies. So you go up to this guy and starts talking to him about all of these different things that he can do with these little machines. And the guy just thinks he's some student sat at the back spouting off. And it turns out he runs this like multi-million pound nanotechnology business. And the two guys then set up a company off the back of it. So it's, th it's things like that where you get the, the, the understanding of a problem in one space 
where you apply a discipline from another, that's where you get the big innovations. Absolutely. Yeah, I was, my brother and my mom are both doctors and they were actually talking about that. I think it was last Christmas, they were talking about delivery of medicines using nanotechnology. I think that's similar to what you were talking about. Yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, yeah. I mean, you think of one of the big problems, like how do you, how do you stop a virus in your system that's mutating and you're relying on your system and your body that creates antibodies to meet that specific virus. So your, your body has to evolve to create different ones. Your antibodies evolve. At the moment, you don't see any practical applications for that where you can go get an injection and robots are just going to self-scan everything and kill, the, kill it for you. Um, but the technology is... Hopefully Elon Musk will hurry up. Yeah. He seems to be solving all the meaningful problems. Right? He's going to inject that neural net with his little nano robots and then the world, everything, all the problems will be solved. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is great. I, I, I'm in, super in love with this conversation. You're awesome, Andrew. I'm reading your bio here. Yeah. My awesome producer, Jenny, she puts together these great, great one sheets for me. And it's like your credentials are friggin' awesome. <laughs> I love that you do, you, you went, you've got information. Let's, let's like, identify your knowledge areas yeah. or at least the ones we're, we're going to talk about you've got information from going from developer to cto yeah huge fan uh what was the base programming language that you learned in so i actually started learning it well the very first programming language i ever used was visual basic <laughs> yeah, which, yeah which uh that was at college um not my favorite programming language at university really it was a lot of java programming sort of enterprise job, mm. that kind of thing. Um, though from sort of the freelance stuff I was doing alongside university um, and the primary languages I went into after that tended to be a lot more web. So nowadays it's a lot more PHP, JavaScript, you know, those kinds of um, web-based languages. Right, because the web like just massively expanded. Now I never programmed in Java, right? Yeah. Uh, but what I did enjoy about it was that most of the books that were written about code structure, like Martin Fowler and stuff like that, uh, a lot of the code structure books that had that type of information, their examples were all Java. So it seems like they had a lot of great people in Java. Yeah, I, I think if you look at historically what's happened with programming languages, so back about 10 years ago, if you look at the PHP world, it used to be a very loosely typed language. You could still argue it's loosely typed. It was considered like you're kind of hacking away in your in your back shed you've got flexibility to do whatever you can with it um what, whatever you like with it you're not really restricted but also you could you could write very very bad code very easily and i think what you saw around that kind of time was java came out very you know it's a typed language you've got to be strict on certain conventions that you use and there's certain concepts that were popularized particularly through the universities with the introduction of java um, a lot of people coming out of sort of colleges and an education with that understanding. And I think it's actually led the standards behind um, programming language that were traditionally considered not to be very good, like like PHP. Mm. Is that, so you, you program in a lot of PHP? Uh, yes, yes, we do. Framework um, of choice, framework of framework choice. Framework of choice, Ye2 or Symphony. It's probably the two that I would- Ooh, oh, there's one I have not heard of. What is What was the first one? Ye2. Ooh, I've seen, I, I was doing, I was doing PHP about 10 years ago. Yeah. I did it for a handful of years, let's say four or five. And then a friend of mine, uh, Derek, we got on this Ruby kick 
And to us, it was like the most amazing. It's like we found out what water was. We were just like <laughs> jumping up and down, so happy. And then we just fully committed over to Ruby and been in love with it since. But so you you stayed on the PHP train? Yeah, we did. I, I think a lot of the a lot of that comes from sort of where we came from as an agency. So um, sort of when you're when you're growing a company from being just yourself, which is how we how it started originally, through trying to employ people. Like when we were very small, we never really had the credibility to take on large projects. Um, right. So at the time, like if you look at how we're building the team, we're building the team all around web-based solutions, um, websites, mm. right? And really, like a lot of the early days stuff was was pumping out websites, right? And you're not, unless you're building something large, I think it's unlikely that you're going to approach a brochure website using Ruby. So that's kind of where the PHP journey started. Um, but, you know, like nowadays, the tools and everything that exists for it are so much more mature. And the platforms that exist to support hosting it, the server infrastructure you can put in place on on things like Amazon Web Services, if you're trying to um, offshoot from running your own cloud setup, um, they're really modern and mature, and they they scale well with that technology. But it's do you, do you use Heroku at all? No, we we haven't really used that. I I find that people are kind of split, right? So some people are are huge fans. Like I I'm in that category. I'm a huge fan of Heroku. That being said, I have both. I have production apps that are both directly on AWS with its own infrastructure and just AWS tools, and then I've got apps that are on Heroku. Yeah, I mean, I've done little bits on Heroku. So we had um, we had a customer application that was built using oh, was it Pulse or Pass? Was it Pass that got that got uh, bought out by Facebook? That got axed. Yeah, they got axed. Yeah, so it was that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that hosted them. And, and then I think they open sourced, right? They they got axed and then they open sourced, right? So you could host your own installation of it. Axed, open sourced, and then you've got a big community supporting this past thing that is, I think, essentially dead. I love React. Are you a fan of React? Favorite. Use quite a few things. Huge, huge. Um, React is stuck, firmly stuck. We adopted Angular very early on. So we still have quite a few projects running that are using Angular 1. And that was a real pain with their whole upgrade cycle through to. Uh... Oh yeah, like when they upgrade and then like all your stuff's obsolete. <laughs> well, it's completely different. Absolutely yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of moved away from Angular. We still run some projects in it. Uh, still doing a little bit in in Angular one and two. But yeah, React is. If you look at the study, they do. They do I can't remember the source now, but there's there's a source that uh, does research into the the frameworks that developers are most happy working within. Um, each year and every every year for the last like two or three years react's been right up there everybody loves using it yeah we switched our so i have a an app company and about six months ago we tested the waters with a react native app and before that we had you know multiple developers on every project you know got the ios and android guy on the project and we have since in the past six months we are 100 percent native for every project going forward and we've only gone back and converted like two and we leave the rest of the clients on their the old systems unless if they wanted to do full rewrites but you know that's people don't really want to do that so i i'm i'm absolutely in love it's made my i'm i'm biased because it made my life easier <laughs> yeah right yeah it's true you got to be careful haven't you i mean it's good we use it because it's good, probably for the exact same reasons that you do. Yeah. But I'm, 
Do you ever find yourself trying to be careful that you're making decisions based upon what's right versus what's easy? I, I took a long time to get into React, both the web component and React Native projects, because I was so burned by those previous projects like Xamarin, mm-hmm. all those all those frameworks like PhoneGap, all those garbage things, right? That like caused me infinite stress just trying them. I, I didn't want to go into React and it was from a marketing perspective, it was hard for me to get sold yeah. on it. And then I kept reading the blog posts of the developers using it. And I said, all right, well, let's try it on an internal small project. That doesn't really matter. And we did. And I was just blown away. So I, so I went to my next client that I got. And I said, hey, we want to try this. Is it cool? They said, yeah. And I said, all right. So we, we tried it. Because I, I was here's, the, here's a good point. I was open and honest with the client. Okay. I didn't just like throw a long shot, right? I didn't just do a Hail Mary pass and say, oh, I hope this works first. I tested it on an internal project that didn't matter. I liked yeah. it. Then when I, I told the client, I said, look, we could do it the way that we absolutely know, the way that we're completely fluent in, but we, we want to try this. And I actually gave them a price reduction because we were trying it and I got them involved with it and I shared with them and it's that communication that allowed it to happen. So I think when you say struggling between doing what's, what did you say? Doing what's right and what's... Doing what's right and doing what's easy. Because the reason I mentioned that is when I first saw React, I was interested in it because it ticked the, oh, that looks easy box. Ah. Do you see what I mean? Like that that was my first, oh, I like that. But then you, you kind of got to stop yourself and be like, well, is it is it the right solution? I, I personally think it is. I think it's great technology. Um, but I, I think some of the Cordovas and the phone gaps that exist out there, they were on the surface... Oh, that makes life easier. But does and then it? they were not. They did, <laughs> they did not deliver. No, not when it comes to six months down the line and you want to update it and all you like the dependency night. I don't know if you've had to do this yourself, but the dependency nightmares you can have sometimes with uh, a, a project that is is an infrequently updated one could be an absolute nightmare in Cordova. Oh no! Luckily, I haven't gotten that far with the Cordova. I never got past the testing phase um, with just playing with it, and it was that frustrating for me. So I just let it go. I see here that you have a couple apps. Yeah. So so Scorchsoft is my uh, my web app and mobile app development agency, and you've got oh excellent model, which is a uh, a mobile application a platform that allows people to book professional agency represented models. Oh, that's cool. I like I like how you did the language thing there with MODL. And uh, where is that? Is that what the the second business, the the model app? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're based in the UK. Now I'm curious. So when did how did that project come about? So through Scorchsoft, I've been in the tech scene locally in Bur- in Birmingham, which is the area that I live in the UK for the last seven years. Um, Mm-hmm. So you end up taking on a lot of tech projects, you network a lot in the tech scene, you meet other like-minded entrepreneurs. There's kind of like a, an ecosystem forming in this area, kind of probably not quite what you've got in Silicon Valley, <laughs> but, you know, kind of akin to that kind of thing. Right. Um, and there was some friends of mine who we met through business, also entrepreneurs run kind of into social media, uh, run their own social media agency. Um, we, were, we were kind of talking about this problem that existed in the in the modeling industry so you've got you've got essentially quite an outdated marketplace you've got high fragmentation lots and lots of agencies out there small ones uh, with small rosters of models um, but from a model perspective it's not uncommon for people to take 32 62 days to receive payment for a job 
if they receive it at all, got to do a lot of chasing. Everything's email based. It's really not kind of like a modern up-to-date process like you would expect for most industries. So we sat down and decided that um, this was a meaningful problem to solve. Um, and we formed a business together. So, I mean, if you look at the team, you've got myself as uh, CTO, head of tech, uh, Amy, who is um, COO, she kind of does, um, she's got a lot of experience in photography, working on big budget productions, that kind of thing. You've got Jody, runs a social media marketing agency, and um, Ben, who is a professional model. So it's kind of like a an alignment of skills kind of that kind of came together to tackle that particular one. Oh, smart. So you have you're you have an agency and you do some social media stuff? So um Jody, her agency, JC Social Media, that they're kind of like a social media agency. Um so it's it's they they are a uh, shareholder in the business. Now, do you ever come across Gary V? Who hasn't come across Gary V? <laughs> okay. First of all, huge fan, right? Yeah, of course. I yeah, we we started executing so I've been listening to him, I don't know, on and off. He just he was just a guy coming through my feed for about a year. Oh, really? And then about yeah, and then about 6 months ago, I was like, "All right, this this guy, he said enough things that are the way I think to where I validated him, right?" Cool. I said, "All right, we're we're similar. Good, let's listen to him some more." And then I started consuming more of his content, you know, made him a priority in my feed, and then I said, "All right, well this guy is like I like him a lot now." And he says great stuff. And it took about six months of me listening to him because, you know, I'm busy running my business and I'm not like hurting at all for business or anything like that. But then I, I was so interested in in what he was saying and the value he was bringing. I, I took I took a chunk of cash and I said, all right, we're going to execute a project. You know, and I, I'm in the app development world, right? Yeah. So I said, we're going we're gonna to execute a project. And we're going to do what Gary Vee says, and we're going to just science the shit out of this, right? We're going to do science. We're going to do what Gary Vee says and and take his advice and just kind of be an uh, an example of that, right? Yeah. And we did, wow, like unbelievable. It so works. Project? This, this is the project. Oh, this is the project. Oh, I see. This is the project. Makes sense. Makes a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, I've got, you know, 2,000 pre-registered. I wrote the book. Uh, 2,000 pre-registers already for it. Top CTOs in the world on my podcast. I so this is this is this is the the trans uh, the story. This is how it happened. So I start writing this book last year. Okay. Yeah. And I get halfway through it, and a bunch and life happens. And then over the summer there was kind of like a lull. And then I started you know watching Gary Vee, and I said, all right, well it's time to get more serious about the book. So I hired a staff writer and to help me finish the book. Right. Nice. Good call. So, yeah, because if I can put it in my schedule and say, all right, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 11 a.m., we meet for an hour and all we do is the book, it then, then it gets done. So we did that for a couple months and, and finished the book. And it came out really well. I was very, very excited about it. So I started sending it to all my CTO friends, right? I said, oh, you know, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? I was sending the chapters to them as they come in. And then they started calling me and saying, and then we were talking for like, 30, 40 minutes about the book, about the <laughs> chapter, you know, like how I covered it, what was covered, so on and so forth. And, and then I, one time my wife's like, you know, you should just record the calls because she hears me, you know, making the calls. And I said, oh, that'd be kind of cool. That way I could remember what we talked about and everything. And then I started playing the calls back to my different friends, right? I'd send out, say, hey, listen, look, I talked to this CTO, listen to the call. And he's like, oh, that's great. And then someone's like, you got to do a podcast. Yeah, absolutely. 
you got to do a podcast. So I went online and I found a podcast producer and I said, all right, cool. And then I took the, the pre-registers, the 2000 people that had pre-registered for the book. And I, no joke, Gary V DM style went to every single person, <laughs> looked them up on LinkedIn, looked them. This is how I found you, right? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So I looked them up. I was like, all right, this is a cool, interesting person. I wrote an email. I said, hey, do you have anything you want to share? Because everyone seems to want to sh- like talk to me about it. So I was like, you have anything you want to share? Yeah, yeah. Then I set up a calendar thing, had people book. And Andrew, you could see the calendar on the website. We're booked like two months out. Yeah, you were full up. I was like, wow. Because <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was on holiday at the time when you messaged. And I was thinking, oh, they, you know, I'm away at the moment for the next three weeks. I hope, they've, hope they don't mind waiting. And you weren't even available. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's it, it blew my mind. So it's definitely like a gratitude situation because I just, you know, reached out and then everybody was ultra responsive, similar to how they were registering for the book. And I start look, you know, as I'm looking through these people and getting to know them, the people that register for my book, I mean, they're the top CTOs in the world. Like, and they're so interesting. Like you are so incredibly interesting. I love the whole weightlifting acrobat, C, you know, developer to CTO. You're involved in the community. Like you, you speak well, you communicate clearly. I mean, these are the people that if at the end of my life, when I'm sitting on my deathbed type situation, I want to be like, all right, well, I made some apps, I made some money so I could feed my family. But man, I, every single day I talk to this like awesome person who I had similar interests with and like that's winning for me, right? Well, if you're, if you're looking at what you're doing and you feel enjoyed and fulfilled, you've, you're finding meaning in what you're doing. Why not? I mean, I think it's a great what you're doing is a great idea. It's the whole reason I decided to sign up for it. I I never expected to be reached out to, so that was nice. Um, but if you've got the opportunity, if you've got the opportunity to improve yourself, you're going to take it. And I think a lot of the, in the world of being a CTO, you've got to be constantly looking at what the best resources out there are to teach you the things that are adapting that you don't know about yet that are no doubt on the horizon that could kill you. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> no, you're, it's, it's amazing how similarly I'm finding that I think with, with all these people and when they, when they start airing, you'll, you'll start hearing this as well as, um, these same conversations come up and the, the, I, when I was watching the futurist guy this morning, David, yeah, he was saying, he was describing to the audience his job, right? My job is to look and pay attention to what's happening so I can then predict the short term and long term future so that I can help companies, you know, make the right decisions with, with their paths. And I thought to myself, well, that's like a huge part of my job. Everything from where am I going to hedge my bets for what, you know, like React Native. That was me making an investment decision in my company. That was a, that's a critical move, mm. right? One of the biggest challenges I always have is, so when you're small, when, you, when you're a one-man band, you can look at technologies that exist out in the marketplace. You can flit and change and move. Every project moves on and you, there's no real there's no real debt associated with making the wrong decision. You just move on. They're your projects. It doesn't matter. Um, once you start to form a team, however, any time that you adopt something new, even if it's trendy and modern and what everybody's doing, if it's a change in any way, there's a huge amount of cost to the business in shifting and pivoting. And if you make a mistake, not only have you risked a potential project, but you could also be in a position where you need the expertise within the team to support something that long term you you don't you don't really want to be having the, the skills in your team to support. You don't want to have the training there. You don't have the structures and the infrastructure. Um, so it was the right decision, React Native. I think so. You think so. But at the time when you're doing it, 
you do feel like you're taking a gamble. There's no getting around that. Oh, absolutely. That's why I, when I did it, I, I did it in a way that allowed me to minimize my exposure, right? By informing the client, trying it internally. Like I did it in a, I took a risk. It is a risk nonetheless, but I took a risk that was, I could absorb the, if, if it went south, right? So how are you finding other people handle taking these kinds of risks? Because it's a common thing in the, in this industry, right? Taking risk in general? Well, just like deciding the horses to back really, because it's, you know, I always battle with myself myself over whether you're doing the right things. And it's very easy in tech where everyone's got an opinion and an acronym that, that they know that another developer doesn't know. <laughs> and it's where you really, it's focusing on where you need to direct that attention really from a business perspective. Oh, that's a huge, I just wrote an article on that. It was, I think the post was called The Visionary CTO. And it was talking about how I I feel the way I, when when, I'm working on technology or I'm trying to communicate something. This is great. I love that I'm stumbling about around communication while trying to talk about <laughs> communicating clearly. It's always the way. Irony. It's thick, the irony. So I said, we have this inside, I've got this monkey version of myself, right? This very like primal version of myself. And then I, that's like my stupid version, right? But just pure animal. And then I've got like my intellectual side. And when I'm drafting communication, like if I'm going to explain a complex technology in a very clear way, it takes a lot of of back and forth between seeing, you know, how my animal side feels and how my intellectual side feels. And when I align them, I have this excellent, clear communication, mm -hmm. right? They're in sync and they're aligned. And the response to that is people hiring me to communicate their technology clearly. They'll say, we've got this very complicated technology and we want to go take it to market, but we don't know how to communicate it in a very clear, concise way. Yeah. Will you help us out? And so I started taking on a few of those projects recently and then they, people were asking me, well, how do you do it? And then my explanation for how I do it was, well, I've got the you know, autistic side of myself, right? The, the part of me that, that is, just doesn't understand. And then I have the intellectual part. And what I do is I try to bring them together. I know what you mean, though. Like, I, I certainly get times where, and my friends joke about it, where sometimes I'm, on a, I'm so absorbed in what I'm doing it's particularly if I'm over, if I'm hungry. Yeah, have you ever heard of being hangry? If I'm hangry, like my oh yeah, my ability to be emotionally intelligent and empathic just completely switches off. It's gone. But it, it's interesting what you're saying about the whole visionary side of things and teaching and training because I think like you've got a customer or you've got a stakeholder and they could be anywhere on the spectrum of a different spectrum here of tech savvy to completely tech illiterate and you have to be able to communicate to them pretty advanced, complex topics in a way that not only do they, do they understand, but they can make decisions off the basis of. And in order to do that, you've got to, it's not just a case of knowing the tech. You've also got to know the person. You've got to be able to read the person. You've got to be able to read the situation. And I think maybe like if, we, if we're talking about things that are about being an effective tech leader or effective senior person in general, I think that that is one of the most important characteristics that you can have. Do you ever listen to, are you a fan of Simon Sinek? Yes, I've seen him. He oh. talks a lot about, uh, he's the guy who talks a lot about millennials, isn't he? And yeah, well, that's a favorite buzzword. Yeah, he, he does the whole start with why. He, he does the find your why. He talks about leaders, eat last. He's got a couple good books and a couple great TED Talks. But for some reason, he just popped into my mind when you were talking about that. Yeah, he's a good, he's an interesting guy. I think, um, 
a lot a lot of the concepts of what makes great leaders you see regardless of the sector and regardless of the role um i was thinking about this the other day i know i keep bringing this to the whole cto topic but in terms of what makes an effective senior manager so just look at a business you look at the ceos you look at the the ctos you look at the cmos they're never down in the ditches not in the ditches they're never down in the trenches <laughs> in the ditches they're never down in the trenches doing the doing they shouldn't be they they are communicating they are strategizing and they're managing people that's it you know what's interesting about that is when i made the tr transition going from developer building a product to having investors come in and having to make that transition to do more of the business thing and assume a role of a cto that it was very difficult for me to qualify or quantify the work right because previously i had done it based on progression throughout the code base mm -hmm. i build the feet i get the feature i build the feature the features are complete we ship the product and it was that sense of completeness and honestly as a developer i would like almost scoff and i full fully admit you know when i'm wrong right so i would scoff at like the business people oh they they don't work <laughs> they just they just talk right they just talk and i we're doing the real work like the developers like you know all that and then i got into the business side of things and that that is work it is real work to be able to communicate it takes it's a lot of effort it's a lot of energy to come up with the simple communication to be able to then conversation after conversation relay the same information with the same consistency and energy and it is a whole world of work and that was surprising to me. I think there's a there's a massive difference as well. So you've got the work side of it, but it, it's a whole different psychology to how you motivate and drive yourself and decide what tasks are meaningful. I mean, when you're when you're working on an engineering topic, you have a you have a particular output you're trying to solve. You can sit down, code away, play with it when your problem's done, and you've ticked the box of the thing that's done. Like when you're trying to do businessing, <laughs> you uh I love it. That's the name of your next book, Andrew. <laughs> Businessing by Andrew Ward. Yeah, that should next book, Businessing. Um, but when you're when you're businessing, you've got to constantly evaluate whether the things you're doing are the things that are worth the time and worth the effort and worth the energy. And it's very very easy when you're transitioning from being like a developer to a business person to like seek the comfort of coding away when actually like that's completely distracting from the long-term goals of where you actually want to be as a business. Ooh, a lot of people needed to hear that. I get that from a lot of conversations, people that are often drowning in development or they're, I get a lot of people who call like life raft style, like, oh, help me out. You know, I just assume this role as a CTO and I'm kind of going crazy because I'm trying to program 40 hours a week and then manage 40 hours a week and I'm working 80 hours a week and it's not working. And I'm like, drop the programming. And you don't have to drop it completely, but move to an air traffic controller role where you're reviewing code and doing pull requests and de doing deployments a few hours a week, right? And then spend the other amount of your time on the actual like CTO style role, right? Yeah, but there are constraints stopping people from being able to do that so easily. Now, uh, this is, I want to get into this. Ex give me an example of the constraints. So I'm going to come at this from the perspective of an agency model. Okay. Right? Um, but it can apply to other sectors as well. Lone Ranger, myself, back in the day, programming becomes very good and can win freelance and contracting roles. Right. So they're, they're in a position where they're kind of touching on the whole entrepreneurship game, um, but they're not fully embracing it at the moment because they're still essentially working for somebody. Mm. 
So I've seen agencies that go, right, I want to grow. And what they do to grow is they they start to take on other tech people in the business. And they're a tech person themselves. And that's actually how I grew as well. And they start to grow their team and they, they become like a team of one or two or three. And they're able to take on these tech projects. Okay. But you hit a point where if you want to step away from being a developer in a business, in that environment, you have to, so let's say you go from three people to four, that step isn't going from three developers to four developers. That step is going from three developers to three developers plus a a, a 100% fee-burning head, in theory. (laughs) (laughs) And the business has to change in order to support that overhead. Um, And it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, if you've got existing customers, you may have to review your hourly rates and increase them because your old model of charging doesn't work anymore. Um, You've got to have a change in the way that you do business and and the processes in your company to support having the additional heads in it. And it doesn't stop there. So that's the first time that you go from a position of everybody in your business being a fee earner to a fee burner. Um, You know, if, if you want to grow, you're going to need account managers. You, you know, you might need a project manager. You might need additional heads in your business again. And unless you really have a solid structure there that supports that growth, it's a, there's a lot of lessons to be learned to transition from just being one person to being many. Uh, unless you have money right off the bat, like you might do if, you've, if, if, you, if you're raising straight away, um, it's, it's a difficult thing to transition into. No, it's, it's the reason why... the you find a lot of the lone rangers who are completely booked solid, but they can't, they can't expand. I mean, and then you find the agencies that have 400 employees and, you know, the technical skills of the leaders at the beginning are on, on par. They're together, right? They're similar, but it was their ability from a business management strategy that allowed them to scale it up and to bring it back to the, uh, the previous topic was these developers that become CTOs. They, the big problem that keeps coming up in my life when they're when they're messaging me and, and emailing me is that they're not able to step away from the development, and it's something you brought up, and because they love it, right? And then they they kind of assume a CTO role because the project's going, but then they have issues either letting go or they just don't know what to do because they quantify their their value. They don't feel like they worked a day when they're sitting around having conversations with different businesses or different partners or whatever it is. When they're not writing code, they feel like they're not working. So then they're, what they're doing is they're stressing themselves out. And I see this happen a lot. It's really tough. When if I See, I knew when I was at university, when I graduated, I knew that if I wanted to do what I wanted to do, which was to run an agency and run startups off the back of that agency. That's what I wanted to do. Um, I knew that I had to stop programming at some point, but that the programming was really important to get me where I needed to be. But the roles and responsibilities as a business person, almost like the personality of being a business person is so different to being a technical engineer that there's, there's almost like an inherent misalignment there between what what motivated somebody to get into tech and what they need to be to be a business person. It's almost like there's like, like if you did a Myers-Briggs of the average business person, you did a Myers-Briggs of the average tech person, I bet you there would be like a clash in between the two. And, and that's why I think it's so hard to transition. It's not just 
you're, you're getting right to the bottom of what motivates people. People who code love to love to solve problems. They love to get their hands dirty and solve problems themselves on their own. They love to test and play with what they built when they've done it and have this sense of achievement and meaning that is that is on a feature by feature basis. I mean, we've all been there. We've built something and probably clicked around on it for like half an hour testing when actually we're just like the animation of it popping out the side or something. Right. You know what I mean? And you don't, especially when you get that nice easing when it like eases real smooth. Oh, oh come on. Makes you want to lick yeah. it. <laughs> okay. Nope. Uh, <laughs> is that just me? That is, not, that, that is just you. Right. Uh, let's hope it's an animated ice cream cone. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. No, I get what you're saying though. Like you get, uh, so I was able to successfully transition the the adrenal rush right or that shot of Mm. of excitement and adrenaline from writing the code to building the business and it wasn't an overnight thing it actually happened very slowly over probably about seven years right where i was i was still a lead developer on a project that i was also an investor and an owner of and i had junior developers with me and i was still programming you know, 20 hours a week, mm. maybe 30 hours a week. And then, and then I would do that for six or seven months. And then as the business started to take off, I would slowly program less and less and less. And then the next business, I would be the beginning developer. And that happened, I think two or three times where I started out myself, built it up, sold the business, started out myself, built it up, sold the business. And, and then in that act of doing that, I, I slowly, like, it's like I tiptoed, I eased into the business. And then I went back to developer, ease into the business, and I kind of got those skills over seven years. And then, you know, most recently, I didn't ever decide, like, I'm not, I never had the moment where I'm like, I'm not coding, right? It just kind of happened. I realized, I was talking to my wife about it. I was like, I haven't written code in, in like three weeks. You know, that was the first time I noticed it because it happened. And then I, I realized, I'm still like, then I was only doing GitHub commits and pull requests and stuff like that. And I try to stay in it. You know, like I watch, I still get my Ruby weekly emails and I still, you know, watch Adi Graham and these are just personalities in Ruby, right? So I still, I still watch the code stuff come in because mm-hmm. I want to stay, you know, aware of what's happening, but I'm not doing it every day. And I guess I'm finally at the point in my life where like, I'm okay with that. But that's the challenge, right? Because as a CTO and you mentioned having dinosaurs, right? So you mentioned on one of your oh, yeah. about dinosaurs. Well, maybe a dinosaur exists because they reach the point where they become a senior person and it's difficult to know what technologies and like it's difficult to know what you need to focus on to stay in the game and what you need to step away from so that you've got the right combination of business and tech at any one time that's very true because you usually look to the the newer people who are in it eating sleeping and breathing it right they're obsessed with it and they're always excited about whatever technology that they're using there's always new stuff. So from, from a higher level perspective, when you're looking at all these people, you kind of have to find the right person that you really believe in and trust and that you validate that person and then say, like, what are you using? What are you doing? Yeah, I think asking people is always a good thing. But when you're problem solving and as a CTO, you, you are always problem solving, you've got to, it's like a foundation of computer science that you've got to know to be able to solve that tech problem in a meaningful way. And you you do need a deep understanding of some of the, the tech things from a programming perspective. So even though you can't program, you need that deep understanding and that deep knowledge. And it's something that you've got to 
try to stay in and build. I mean, I so I don't program. Well, I say I don't program. I, I can never avoid doing bits. Yeah, I mean, I, right. I mean, you always get drawn to it. Like, oh, just like it's just this little. It's kind of like a lack of discipline. Maybe I should just not do it. Get used to delegating it. But something I find as a technique to help is I will often when when developers in my team have a technical problem i will almost pair program with them with them programming and me just sitting over their shoulder as a means of just making sure that i'm constantly exposed to the code that we're working in even though i'm not necessarily working on it so i'm i'm constantly mm. problem solving in the code which means that i don't need to get into it too deeply but i'm also seeing enough of it and know how it works and know how it stitches together and i could write it but without ever needing to write it, if that makes sense. No, I to- it's like the book, right? Like I sit here and I share the experiences and I detail them out and then the writer goes back and makes them into a writing and then I look at it a second time and make sure that all the sentiment was conveyed the way I want it conveyed. So I, it's how I scale myself, right? It's like I can't sit down and spend that time. Mm. That's not a good use of my time. And the same thing with if I'm behind the computer writing the code all day, I can't be out there with the large clients and getting the projects, right? But it's it's also, it's, it's interesting because it's, if you go back, the reason why the clients are so comfortable with me is because of my 17 years experience writing code. Like I know what's happening at my business. Exactly. I'm not a non-technical business owner. I mean, is this a common problem when you're talking to people? Like are people, are other people feeling this too? Uh, which Which problem? The whole um, stepping away whilst also not stepping away. Yes, this is huge. And and here's the thing I'm getting, and because there's not anyone on my radar, and if there is, let me know, that has come in and connected all the CTOs together. And that's why I wanted to do it, because I, I love these types of people, right? So I, I started pulling everyone together and emailing out every single person. And they all start, you know, the most common response I get, Andrew, from me asking somebody if they if they have an experience to share? Is it yes? No, the, the, most, the most common one that surprised me was, I don't know if I have anything valid to share. I didn't take the traditional route. I went from developer to CTO. Which is the traditional route. They've, nobody, nobody knows because nobody's like out there creating a CTO platform where like we can all talk about it. Hmm. But apparently we have found this to be true. It's the whole expert mentality, isn't it? Like if you take somebody who is not very good at something, it's very common to get people who think they're very, very good at something, but they're actually not. Like they're unconsciously incompetent. If that makes sense, yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a sweet. I'm gonna unconsciously incompetent. Yeah, so you got the you got the conscious competency matrix, haven't you? So you got unconsciously incompetent. You've got consciously incompetent, consciously competent, and then unconsciously competent. So like, if you if you get somebody who's got all this bravado, thinks they're really good, and and they're not, then they are unconsciously incompetent because they don't realize how bad they are. <laughs> Ooh. now what you often have with people who are true experts in their field is they are they might be consciously competent in, w- in which case they're thinking very much about what they do um or they're unconsciously competent where they're not where they're where they're literally doing things on autopilot and they don't even realize at that stage the difficulty and in, in what they're doing and how how advanced that is than everybody else but what they do see is the more unconsciously competent they get in their field there's a whole perimeter around this unconsciously competent bubble that is growing as someone gets better and better where people realize more and more things that they are not good at it's like the whole analogy of like if you have a torch and you've got a thin beam like you can see you can see the wall but the perimeter's small like you get a really big beam like you can see more of the wall but 
the darkness, like the perimeter of darkness is much larger too. You realize what you don't know. Um, and I think particularly in tech, you've got people who are probably very good at what they do, very good computer scientists, but there's so many technologies out there. There's so many acronyms that you don't know. Like what one person uses for testing might not be what another one does. Computer scientists will sit together in a room and everyone will be talking jargon and people don't see what they know. People only see the the anxiety that they might feel when they're in a conversation and someone mentions something that they don't know that they feel they should. And I think it it makes experts feel like they're incompetent, which is probably why people say, I don't I don't know what I would have to offer. I don't know what I have to share because they don't realize the value of the knowledge they've got. This is a brilliant explanation. I don't know if it's your own, but like I'm loving it, right? Problem solving. We were talking about problem solving earlier. Yes. About how essential it is. And I, I wrote about this in, in the book about how I do the problem solving. Do you, and I mentioned in the comment in the book, I say, if you walked up Jay Leno style, like he interviews people on the street, if you walk up and interview someone on the street and you ask them, what is your go-to problem solving heuristic? What is the way you solve problems? Like when something comes up in your life, tell me right now, you would get crickets. You would just, they would, their eyes would glaze over. Most people don't have it on the top of their tongue. Do you? So I think it's actually a negotiation. Mm. Um, so when you're in a negotiation with somebody, you are trying to get them to engage their prefrontal cortex, right? So, so let's say I'm talking to you and I offend you. Your, your, your prefrontal cortex turns off and you can't think, right? So when you're problem solving, it's a similar thing, right? Like if, if someone's under threat or someone's got anxiety against the problem, they're not going to solve it very well. What, why is that relevant? It's the questions that you ask to get people to solve the problem. So I, I think well-positioned what and how questions force people to innovate in, in their answer to you, as long as you're asking the right ones. Um, so it depends upon Ooh. the problem. But, but a series of well-placed what and hows is probably the most effective tool that you can use in a negotiation and in creative problem solving. My, my method, what I do, is I take a science, very science approach to it. And I say, we're just going to do some... Trial, area, trial and error, variation, selection. We're just going to try 10 things and we're going to take the top three that work the best and we're going to create you know, revisions of those and then constantly... You assume you know what problem you're solving by that point. That's, that's later down the chain, right? Well, yeah. If you don't know what problem you're solving, you can use this technique to find the problem that you need to solve. Okay. Ooh, there's some like inception stuff. <laughs> right? Cause like and I say that to people that I work with too. Uh when I when I come in and I'm working with a team and I see people that don't know what to do, I said, Oh, well, that's real simple. If you're not doing anything, your problem is you don't know what to do. You make that your problem, you write it down, and then you apply a problem solving technique to that. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. They all, you know, usually people say it's the first time they've heard that, but I have, I came up with that skill because I was always a lone developer entrepreneur type person. And I would sit around and have these gaps and say, I don't even know what I'm doing right now. And then I had to figure it out. And so I created this like skill, I guess, by accident where whenever I don't know what to do, I don't have a problem that I'm solving or I'm not doing something. I use a problem solving technique to figure out what to be doing. I like it. So you got this problem solving technique. Yeah. Is it always the same set of questions that you ask yourself? No, it's, it's not, um, it's not questions. It's a, well, yeah, I mean, there's the recurring, there's recurring questions that I go through, but it's more of like the framework of trying a handful of things and then testing them 
and seeing which ones work and then creating variations on those and then repeating that process until I find the solution I'm satisfied with. So let me give you an example of when this go, how people do not do this, right? Okay. I love learning by what not to do. They, I call it like the single, single method expert solution, right? So they, they have a problem. Oh, we're out of business and we have a problem. Let's bring in an expert and he'll give us the, like, he'll give us a solution and then we will enact that solution and that, and we'll call it a day. And that's how you get into the situation where you walk into a business and you say, why are you doing this? And they say, well, we have no idea. It's always been done this way. All right. Well, it doesn't make any sense. And they're like, I know we talk about it, how it doesn't make sense every day. <laughs> and everyone's sitting around doing that. They're like, well, we paid this guy and he told us to do it this way. And this is what we do. And it doesn't even work. And we just went with that solution. And then you trace back to that guy and he's like, well, I just came up with a solution and I put it in place. And I'm like, whoa, right? Like how often are you good at something the first time you try it? Never. Well, never. And so, <laughs> well, sometimes it's, it's lucky though, isn't it? Usually in the bedroom, that's like the only place that that there's an exception. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Uh, no, but you, you know, so I take that approach to the solutions too. Like usually the first solution is not the best. If it if it is, I'm I'm surprised. And I get that there's balance, right? You can't take at where does the coffee maker belong in the office? Well, let's try ten different places and see where. Like you can't take this approach like in on every little decision ever. But when it comes to the the macro, like the big decisions that are going to be like the core parts of your business, that's how I take the approach. Yeah, I think it's a good way of going. I, I, I think I certainly see it where people are so eager to launch the perfect thing that they don't realize that the perfect thing could be based on completely flawed assumptions. And until you've tested those assumptions... You just don't know. Welcome to the startup world. I get people, they they come to me and they say, oh, we want to do this app. Here's the idea. And I, I just look at them. There's there's no business here. Like there's, you, we can't, I'm not going to take your money and build this. You're going to hate me, right? Like you have to build something that has value. And the way you do that is you come up with an idea, you test it, you ask a bunch of people. And that's another thing I find you're in the startup world. Yep. What do you, how do you feel about when everyone, they have this, oh, I have this great idea, non-disclosure, non-disclosure, I'm not going to tell anyone. I, I don't like that. I take the opposite approach. I have an idea, so I ask 50 people, and then I see if it's worth building. Are you, are you NDA, keep it close to the chest, don't tell anyone, build it secretly, or are you like, let's go ask a bunch of people if this actually has legs? Well, when people come to us, I would always sign an NDA because that's what people expect. Yeah, if, if they want me to sign an NDA, I'll sign it. But the reality is that even if you have an NDA in place, the cost of actually suing someone <laughs> is so high and the friction that it puts in the process of having 50 people have to sign an NDA, it's just not worth it. The reality is, is most people, they haven't got the time, the energy or the capability to steal your idea and do it. I mean, you're probably working, if you really put your time behind it, you're probably spending hours and hours and hours on it that I don't really think it's something that you should, that people should worry too much about. I, I think it's better to just focus on doing it right. Um, but I think it's subjective. I think, you know, if you've got an engineering concept or a particular patent, you've got to do that stuff. So it is subjective, but I, I so in summary, I, I just, I wouldn't let myself personally get held up with an NDA in order to progress my ideas. I mean, I've, I've never actually got somebody to sign an NDA based upon me talking to them about my startup idea. I've never done it. Um, for that reason. Yeah, me either. I just want to get the idea out and see if people like it and respond to it. And then once I do that and I find that people are responding positively to it, 
then I say, okay, well, it might be worth building. Yeah, you've got to be careful, though, because asking people sometimes is the worst way to know the true answer. Like, Have you ever heard of ugly baby feedback? No. Well, the idea of ugly baby feedback is no one's going to tell you if you've got an ugly baby. Uh, I will, yeah. <laughs> so you have to ask them, look, is my baby ugly? Yeah. So I think it's all well and good asking, but you've got to do it in the right way. Right. So in perfect example, this is a whole chapter in the book. I talk about the different ways to ask for feedback. Like you can, the way you ask for feedback, you can screw yourself from the beginning, right? Because mm -hmm. if you if you put someone up on a pedestal and you say, analyze this, you know, their mind shifts to negatives. Like instantly you go to negative identification, like what is wrong with it? Because that's like typically analysis, right? So if you ask them to analyze it over their feedback, you put them in a completely different state of mind. So how do you get true feedback? And well, the way I found is that you ask them what they love about it. You say, hey, what do you love about this? And you put it in their hand, right? What do you love about this? Um, and, and you let them start giving talking to you about it. Oh, I like this, or I like that. And then what will happen naturally is unprompted, they will list two or three things that they enjoy about it. And then there will be that one thing that they say after that. Say, oh, I like this, this, and that. Oh, but it would be cool if, or, oh, but it doesn't do. And, and that's so natural because you put them in the frame of mind of focus on the positives, tell me what's great about it. And so the natural negative will, will seep up through it. You don't even have to ask them for a negative. Ah, that's an interesting approach. Yeah, that's just, an ex uh, that is just me trying a lot. <laughs> <laughs> just trying a lot and, and doing a lot of projects and figuring out that like every time I ask for people's feedback, like, oh, it just doesn't, it, it was, wasn't working out. So I just tried a couple different things and I found that asking people what they love, they, they naturally will list a couple things. And then that last item will be something that needs to change. And then you do that with a, you know, 50 plus people and you'll see that there are two things that everyone says. Do you, do you always do that at the beginning or is it sort of like a mid-project UX thing or? Well, lately I've, the way I design the apps is we do wireframes and then we do completely clickable interfaces with like Envision. And then at that point is when I'm taking it around and showing it to people. Like I like to keep people involved. Every project has like this group of people that just form around me, right? And I take the different personas of the users. So if I were doing a legal app, there'd be, you know, trial attorneys would be like a persona, maybe divorce attorneys would be a persona. Maybe it's all attorneys, but there's different sub personas inside it. So I will find the one human or two humans that represent each group. And I will bring them into my project through relationships and friendships and develop the relationship. And then I will be constantly getting their feedback in, in an unobtrusive, non-annoying fashion, right? through a relationship and I'll be constantly putting it in front of them and, and understanding what they think. And then I take what, what their opinions are and I associate them with that persona. So a lot of people talk about personas and having that and so on and so forth. But I think that they're useless without having an actual relationship with the person that you believe represents that persona and then involving them in the project. Mm. Yeah, that's very true. So then working with that person is how I then I'm constantly asking them about this. Tell me what you love about this. This is great. I'm so excited about it. What do you love about it? Oh, it's so great. Yeah, this is great. This is great. Oh, and then uh, this is like, I don't know. Right? So that is, that. there's my secret sauce. That's that's the... Do you not ever show people it as if it's not yours? 
because that's what that's what i've always done like hey friend has got this yeah i've done that i did that most recently with a fitness we did this fitness app and i showed it to like my wife it was, it was actually my wife's friend and she, she had a friend over they brought the baby over whatever to do like baby play date and i said oh look have you seen this it's crazy everyone's like downloaded it in our town which is very true we had several thousand downloads in our town and she, she said oh yeah i saw it on facebook because she saw you know the we were on the news for it right she's like oh i saw it on on facebook i saw the news article on it I was like, oh, cool. And I was like, you know, I put it in her hand and like let her play with the app. <laughs> um, so I got let her play with the application and got her feedback from it. And she had no idea like I was the developer of it. <laughs> That's great. We did, we did something similar actually with the model business. So with the model business, it's a, it's a web system, but it's also like a, an in-person process. So what happens is someone puts a job brief through. Once they put through their brief, brief a load of models get notified. And there's a whole process then to the model basically accepting that they want to do the job. And we kind of automate all of that, which is which is a big part of the value. But on what then happens on the day is, is the model actually goes to the photographer or the marketing agency or whatever that's booked them. And they, they're, they're likely to have a photo shoot. So early days, obviously, we've, we've been able to ch- test the tech, but the in-person process we had to test too. So so some of the first bookings that we put through were were us doing marketing shoots for our own business where we kind of got real brands on board to who who kind of so we got real brands on board to book models through our platform essentially where we we were kind of fulfilling the photography side of things because we wanted to make sure the quality was there mm-hmm. so what was really interesting is is um so we had a real customer there and we had a real model there who had no idea almost that we were running it nice nice <laughs> So it was really cool to be like, hey, like this model was good. How did you find the pro? And they're like, oh, yeah, it's really, you know, we really like this or or um, this bit could have been improved. And it was just like such, such good organic feedback that you just wouldn't have got if you'd have done it any other way. Awesome. I love it. Yeah, it's like incognito feedback. Make You can make that a chapter in businessing. <laughs> incognito feedback. Incognito How feedback. to be a spy. <laughs> That's awesome. And your accent is like perfect for Audible. Right, you like it? Yeah, <laughs> you got your audible accent for your your spy businessing spy. Ooh. Oh gosh, yeah. I forget. I forget, don't I? Yeah, yeah. You're US based, so I must sound like a proper proper Briton. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how how I sound to you. I hope. <laughs> oh man, what's like? What's the big American thing there? Like, how is it? Is there like a build a wall? <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. Oh, that is awesome. you know when they were talking about the wall you know everyone like why don't we do something that makes more like technology sense than a wall (laughs) like i get like like let's like this is and this is called like creep i guess in a sense i see this happen in the apps let's tie it back to cto the 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 solution that they chose this is single expert solution right here it's happening in in real time andrew the 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 solution they chose was not trial selection variation like it wasn't science it was like wall it's like they they decided they were going to put a wall up and then they put metaphorically a wall up to the idea of doing anything other than putting a wall up it's like insane right well it's the whole idea of the 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 political sphere being 
beyond truth, like people not caring about truth anymore. I think it's the same thing, really. Like the whole concept of a wall is so easy for people to understand that people really don't care about the science behind the decision. I, I think about this a lot, right? So I'm going off on a tangent here. Tell me anywhere in the economy that you see anything even rem that remotely rem resembles the open source movement and the open source community. If you look at it deep down, it is an economic movement. It's, it's, it's a structure and a way of doing things that we've never seen before. It exists because the intellectual property and the development side of things is so easily replicable that the cost of replication is close to zero. And I wonder, like as a society, as we progress, how many other things can we get essentially a, to a cost point of near zero or so cheap that replication is easy, that it actually changes the economy from the inside out? And that's the way that we shift from being like a this capitalist society through to sort of some a society of people that you might expect to see on the culture series of books by Ian Banks. You know, the whole um, humans don't even have money anymore, like because they've got so much unlimited resource. So what do you think is going to happen with education? Because that's another big thing, right? Because people pay a great deal for for essentially a... Gone. 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 You think gone? gone. You think gone? They're brands where we still shop, you know, it's the big box store. It's the store. You, you, you go there to the store until Amazon consolidates the margins, delivers it faster, and you just prime it next day. You know, you, people like the idea of going to the store. They like the brand. They feel comfortable. You got to let it die out. You know, you, the Gary V talks about romanticizing it, right? Like, oh, I went to this school or, oh, I went to, you know, I, I am educated by MIT. So like, oh, you know, that's real cool. You know, but like, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. If I'm on a team and I can't do the things that the team needs to do, my, my piece of paper from my branded school is completely and totally irrelevant. It's my, it all comes down to value and you get the value through the skill. So it's what value do you bring? So at our company, we have this, I'm looking at it right now. We got this giant whiteboard, right? And there's everybody's name on the whiteboard. And every single day we go up on the whiteboard and we write the value that we bring. Like today, this is the value I bring to the company. And I tell each, each one of the people that work with me, let's say you have 10 people under you, because ideally that's where the company's going, right? Yep. You have, you would want the same thing. You're spending your money and your budget in your department. Every single person, you don't need to micromanage them. You don't need to say, what are you doing in this hour? What are you doing in this hour? But what you have to do is you have to take this conversation of value and put it up for everyone at the company to see. And not, and that does two things. First, it, it is very clear who brings what value. And I make people erase check marks and like items off the board. And I say, it's not big enough. That's usually my thing. I say that, nope. That, 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 <laughs> you value, don't add enough value there. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if you put some granular item on there, and and I don't think it brings value. I was like, that's that's too small. It's micro. I need macro. You got to bring macro value every single day, and that's exactly what we do. And at the end, I have people present me their value. You know, go up on the board and tell, show me. I, if I come in and there's four things checked off on the board, I don't just look at them and say, oh, they're checked off. I say, Jake, stand up and present your value. So, what are some examples? Yeah, things that like. If I'm high level conversation, not at the office, and I say, what, like, if I had to name three things this week, what are we doing? What, what will actually move my business forward? The three huge things that will move my business forward. And this Sunday, it was an Alexa skill. We're working on an Alexa skill. Okay. So you're going to have, we're going to do a modern CTO Alexa skill where you can ask her different things and she'll present content both from the Audible book and the podcast. You can ask her to play the most recent podcast, things like that. Um, the promo video is super important. And then finishing the book this week through editing. 
Like those are the huge pieces of value and we're knocking them all out of the park. Yeah, it's, it's always a thing with managing people, isn't it? Like you put in these metrics for tracking things, whether it be testing metrics, time recording metrics, productivity metrics, whatever they might be. But actually like those aren't really what matter. What matters is whether you hit the, the big objectives and it's the small doings that add up to those big objectives. So, so that's exactly right. So I like to say here when we talk about metrics and everyone, there's every app has the graphs and the to-do list. The first thing I say is we don't do like to-do list, we do to-done list. You get to write stuff on list when it's done. That takes all the creative energy away from actually making the list and forces you to instantly act and make an item happen. So you don't get a to-do list, you get a to-done list, right? You put the value up on the board. And then when it comes to metrics, my position on that is when, with, with work metrics, they're the byproducts of you doing some work to create value. So rather than put focus on metrics, that's like looking in the past, like, oh, we did this 400 things. All I want you to do is I want you to put your eyes on the value. I want you to set your eyes on the goal, the value that moves the business forward. And I don't want you to worry about anything else. You're directly judged. And the only way that you get money from the organization is an exchange. I am exchanging the cash flow from the organization to you for more value. And that's that's how I grow the business. Yeah, and it's good to get people on board and understanding why they're doing what they're doing versus just being machines. That's exactly it. It's if you we always present the why. So whenever we have the conversation about value, we talk about the why we're doing this. Like why are we doing the Alexa skill? Well, look at the rise in voice. It's growing exponentially. That's why we're doing an Alexa skill. That's why it's the most imp- one, of, one of the three most important things at my business this week. We have to understand it. It's too big to ignore. And it's not next week. It's not last week. It's like, it's this week. I just decided like it's this week. This week is Alexa skill. So nice. I'm loving it. Though This is great. We're actually like super far over. So you're going to, I think you're the officially the longest podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that's a good thing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great thing. Uh, no, you've absolutely fantastic guest. You brought, speaking of value, Andrew, you brought a significant amount of value to the podcast. It was, it was fantastic. Thank you so much for listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Share this. Get the word out. Thank you guys so much. I couldn't do without you. I appreciate it. You guys are the absolute best.